0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to the Christianese podcast. My name is Drew Fitzgerald, and today we're going to be taking on one of the more controversial topics in Protestant theology. Serious academics argue about this in formal debates. Regular Christians struggle with it in pews at church, and it's the favorite topic of the um, um-actually-theology bros in your local coffee shop. We're going to be talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that I lean more Calvinist, but my goal today is not to convince you of my position. In this podcast, I want to trace the history of the debate. Look at what each side is really saying, and without any straw man arguments, any dismissive statements, present each side as the people who hold those beliefs would present them. But before I get started, there's one question that I need to ask you What is your capacity for mystery? The debate between Calvinism and Arminianism focuses on a narrow range of theology called soteriology. It's our study, or our doctrine, of salvation. And while this is a narrow range of theology, it's a really important range of theology because it's our salvation we're talking about. This is the most eternally critical event in anyone's life, so we really should understand what we believe about it. For many Protestants, particularly Evangelicals, we feel like there are one of two paths that we can go down when we talk about soteriology. On the one hand, there's Calvinism, which is named for John Calvin, a French theologian who lived in the 16th century. On the other hand, there's Arminianism, named after Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, who lived between 1560 and 1609. Both of these systems attempt to describe how God's sovereignty relates to our free will when it comes to our salvation. Briefly, they go like this. Calvinism holds that salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of God and God alone. The entire process, our election, redemption, and regeneration are all the work of God and by his grace alone. And because this is all the work of God, it is him, not man, who determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. Armenianism holds that salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God, who takes the initiative, and man, who must respond to God. And man's response is the determining factor in our salvation. Arminianism says that God has provided salvation for everyone through Jesus, but His provision only becomes effective for those who, of their own free will, choose to cooperate with Him and accept His offer of grace. Because it is man's decision at the crucial point to choose salvation, it is man, not God, who determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. So, those are the two sides. That's the playing field for this podcast. But instead of just jumping in and detailing and pulling apart both sides, I want to really make sure that we understand this debate. And to do that, we're going to have to go back a thousand years before Calvin and Arminius and look at a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk who traveled to Rome around 400 AD. When he arrived in Rome, he found a church extremely lax on behavior. He saw no effort in these churches to pursue holiness or to be any different than the culture that surrounded them. Now, there's a lot of places that Pelagius could have gone in Scripture to talk to these churches about God's call of holiness. But that's not where he went. Instead, Pelagius developed a theology of works. He taught that every person has the natural capability to achieve perfection and salvation. Our sin may be like a deep pit, but each of us has the capability to climb out of it on our own effort. And once we're out of that pit, we have the moral obligation to pursue and achieve perfection. Because if you can be perfect, there's really no reason that you shouldn't be. The Pelagian motivation does not come from union with God, but avoidance of hell. Work hard, don't sin, be perfect, don't go to hell. This is obviously outside of the scope of scripture, and it didn't take long for the church to call Pelagianism a heresy. Pelagianism's most vocal critic was St. Augustine of Hippo and he wrote at length denying its claims, most notably in his work City of God. In it, he lays out two truths which can seem irreconcilable or even at odds. One, God is the absolute master, by his grace, of all the determinations of our will. In other words, God's in control of everything, including our will. Two, man remains free, even under the action of grace. You a human have free will in responding to pelagius saint augustine says no god is not a bystander he's in complete control you can't just save yourself but at the same time you are responsible for your actions god is completely sovereign and in control of everything and you also under that sovereignty have free will well how much free will do you have how sovereign exactly is god Do you feel the tension between those two points? I do. And I'm sorry to say, but this podcast isn't necessarily going to resolve that tension in your mind or in your heart. But it does set the stage for John Calvin. So let's get back to the Protestant Reformation, 1519. During the Reformation, Protestants weren't all on the same page. There was actually a group of Protestants that disagreed with Lutheran theology on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, how Christians should approach God's law, and multiple other topics. Led by a guy named Huldrych Zwingli, they started to develop reformed theology. In the 1530s, they were joined by a young John Calvin, who in 1536 wrote and published Institutes of Christian Religion. I can't really overstate how popular this book was. Not only was it widely read in Latin, but also extremely popular in French and other common languages. Priests, academics, the everyday man, everyone was reading this book, and it helped make Reformed theology one of the most broadly accepted and stable Protestant confessions in Europe. It also drew the ire of the Catholic Church, who labeled John Calvin a heretic, and Lutherans, who mockingly called Reformed theology Calvinist theology. At that time, it was common practice for the church to name heresies after their founder. So to name Reformed theology after Calvin was a pretty serious insult. And it's a name that Calvin himself denounced. In his commentaries and expositions on the book of Jeremiah, he wrote, They could attach us no greater insult than this word, Calvinism. Not surprisingly, Reformed theologians preferred not to be called Calvinist. It's also why a lot of Reformed institutions today prefer to be called Reformed. About 20 years after John Calvin's death, in the 1580s, a young man named Jakob Ermansun, who we know by his Latin name, Jacobus Arminius, becomes a student at the University of Leiden, a Reformed university. While there, he studies under Reformed professors, and in 1588, he becomes an ordained minister of the Reformed Church. And in 1603, he becomes a professor at the University of Leiden. Arminius believes Reformed theology. He practices Reformed theology. He even teaches Reformed theology. But when it comes to John Calvin's soteriology, there are a couple of things that he disagrees with. And once he points these areas out, there are other people who agree with him. This ultimately leads to a conflict within the Reformed theological world. After his death in 1609, Arminius's followers put together a document called the Five Articles of Remonstrance, outlining the areas of Calvin's soteriology that they disagreed with. In response to this document, followers of Arminius were called remonstrants, and the conflict between these remonstrants and those who held Reformed soteriology continued to grow until 1619, when the Dutch Reformed Church called the Synod of Dort, to once and for all settle the debate, who is right, Calvin in his soteriology or Arminius in his soteriology? The Synod met 180 times in less than two years, that's two to three intense theological debates a week, and in the end, they wholly and totally rejected all five articles of remonstrance. There's an argument to be made that the Reformed Church already knew what they were going to decide before the Synod was called, and just went through the 180 meetings as a formality. There's some teeth to that argument, especially since no Remonstrant was allowed to vote in the Synod. And after the Synod, the leader of the Remonstrants was given a life sentence in prison, and their political benefactor, a man with the most Dutch name ever, Johan van Oldenbarnevelt, was convicted of treason against the state, and subsequently beheaded. Now, the Synod did not say that Armenians were heretics. They said that they were wrong in their soteriology, and if they ceased all of their ministry activities, they would be allowed back into the Reformed Church. But most Armenians rejected that, and instead moved to England, where Arminius' theology was picked up by a guy named John Wesley, who went on to found the Methodist Church. Anyone listening to this knows that the Synod of Dort did not stop the controversy between Reformed soteriology and Armenian soteriology. It's still a conversation we have a lot. And that conversation isn't because there's this huge antipathy between Methodists and Presbyterians. It's because soteriology matters. It's intensely personal. And because it's intensely personal, we can get very emotional when we talk about it. So let's look at each side. What is Calvin's soteriology? What is Arminius' soteriology? Calvin's side can be summarized in what's called the Five Points of Calvinism. These are really the counterarguments to the Five Articles of Remonstrance, and they can be remembered with a simple mnemonic device TULIP. T U L I P. T stands for total depravity. It's a doctrine that says every facet of every person everywhere has been marred by sin. We are totally and completely sinful. The U, the most controversial point, is unconditional election, meaning God chooses those to be saved based solely on His will. L stands for limited atonement, which means Christ died only for those who are elect. I, irresistible grace the elect cannot resist God's call to salvation, and P, perseverance of the saints. The elect cannot lose their salvation, and God is actively working through them to make them more like Christ. A lot of people have strong feelings about all five of these points, but the one that really creates the strongest reaction in people is unconditional election, that God before the foundations of the world, has chosen everyone who will be elect or who will be saved. The reason this bothers people is if God has already chosen who will be saved, then there are many, many people on earth who are not chosen, and there's nothing that they can do about it. After Calvin published the Institutes of Christian Religion, both the Catholic Church and Lutherans called his theology cruel primarily because of this point. Ultimately, the doctrine of unconditional election is an explanation for why everybody will not be saved, and it can be difficult to accept. There are some Calvinists who try to explain this or even minimize it by saying they don't believe in double predestination. They don't believe that God's election is what's called a positive, positive decree, that he is positively electing those who will be redeemed and then causing a fresh sin or fresh evil that pushes the non-elect towards hell. That's true, Reformed theology does not believe in that kind of double predestination. But it does hold what's called a positive-negative decree of double predestination. That God positively chooses the elect and then passes over the non-elect. Sometimes when people bring up double predestination, They do it to ignore the passing over of the non-elect. But imagine that you're playing pickup basketball, and you get to pick your team first. You choose your five players, and you've passed over the others. These others won't be on your team. You've passed over them. We really can't minimize how difficult that can be for people to understand and accept. John Piper says that when he learned about and started to believe in unconditional election, he cried for a whole semester. Calvinist theology holds a high view of God's sovereignty. He is God. I cannot know his mind. I cannot tell him what to do. I am a depraved sinner, redeemed by his grace alone, no effort of my own. He can choose because he is God and I don't have to know the reasons why. Unconditional election was an impetus for Arminius to develop his soteriology, but his soteriology is not a reactive or purely emotive soteriology. Arminius was trying to exegete New Testament texts and understand them. To his mind, Calvin was ignoring some really important verses. When it came to depravity... Calvin was reading John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Arminius looks at this and says, but John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief is an act of the will. Classical Arminianism rejects partial depravity. The view that claims that we're sinful, yes, but not so sinful that we can't choose God of our own accord. Classical Arminianism holds a view that's actually really close to total depravity. But in Arminius's soteriology, God shows a preparing or anticipatory grace to people called prevenient grace. God initiates with a person and prepares them or gives them the grace to make a decision to follow God by their own free will. Man does have the ability to choose salvation, but it is the God-given ability to choose salvation. When looking at unconditional election, Calvin was reading Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his legal heirs through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. Arminius looks at Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Arminius looks at God's omniscience and omnipresence and says, of course God would know who chooses him before the foundations of the world. God knows everything, and he's not only in all places, but also all times. He elects those who choose him, and he has foreknowledge of who will do that. Arminius says we are not unconditionally elected, We are elected on the condition that we choose to believe in Jesus. On the issue of atonement, Calvin says Jesus died only for the elect. Look at Acts 20, 28, where Paul instructs the elders in Ephesus to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then Paul says in his letter to the same church that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Arminius looks at this and says, no, it's not a limited atonement. Of course, Jesus died for the elect, but he died for the whole world. 1 John 2, 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died for everybody, but the price he paid on the cross is only effectual for those who choose salvation. When it comes to grace, Calvin says it's irresistible. God calls you, you will inevitably come to him. God moves the heart of a person where he wishes it to go, Proverbs 21.1. Acts 13.48 is another example of this. When the Gentiles heard, they began to rejoice and praise the word of God, and all who had been appointed for eternal life believed. Arminius says, no, grace is resistible. If it's an act of the will, then you can say no. Just look at Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or John 3.18, the one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. There's a decision to be made. And Arminius says you can resist the grace, even the prevenient, preparatory grace of God. And finally, perseverance. Calvin says that true Christians will persevere to the end they will never permanently deny Christ. They're sealed by God eternally, and that God works through them to make them like Jesus. Just look at Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. In Arminianism, there's kind of two camps here. There's what's called conditional salvation, that Christians can turn from God by their own free will. But many Arminians deny this and hold to what is called eternal security. The belief that keeping our eternal salvation is not up to us, it's up to God. They absolutely don't believe that you can lose and regain your salvation a hundred times a day. They look at John 10, 28, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. When we are saved, God is the one who sovereignly keeps us. In Armenian soteriology, God is sovereign. He has to prepare human hearts to choose salvation and trust in Jesus. But it ultimately is not God who is in control of salvation, but man who makes the final decision. Obviously, that is a massive overview, and each side doesn't just use one verse to support their position. But which one is right? Which one is True. This is where I'm going to come back to the question I asked at the very beginning of this podcast. What is your capacity for mystery? Both sides have verses that really clearly, when you're reading the Bible, support what they're saying. God is absolutely in complete control and elects everybody that comes to him. Romans 9.14 says, What then shall we say? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. We also know that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. That 2 Peter 3.9 is true. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise as you regard slowness, but is patient towards you because he does not wish any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. No matter where you stand, there's always going to be that Augustinian tension. God is totally sovereign over everything, including our will. And we have free will and are held responsible for our decisions. How do we deal with that tension? I'm gonna echo John MacArthur and John Piper. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to plumb the depths of God's mind and tell you his motivations and his reasons for why he does what he does. When I look at the Bible and read what it says, I have to say that salvation is always in God's hands, and his mind is more rationally capable than mine is. Because his thoughts are higher than my thoughts and his ways beyond my mind, I have to admit that there are some things that I will not understand. I have to be okay, even in my strong convictions concerning soteriology, to say, I don't know. Even if something is unclear to us, it doesn't mean that it's unclear in the mind of the eternal God. When it comes to soteriology, my response is wonder, awe, that he would ever save a sinner like me. The rest, it's in his hands. This has been a production of FathomMag.com. To learn more about Fathom and to read some of the best Christian writing out there today, go to FathomMag.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu slash podcast.